The following is presented by the Center for Political Innovation, CPI, Building American Socialism for the 21st Century. To learn more, visit cpiusa.org. We did it, folks. We are at five for five. On Monday, I said my goal was to do five streams in a row, and here we are. Here we are, five streams in a row. Five for five. Wow, folks. That's good. Nothing more satisfying than setting a goal for yourself, turn out the light, and achieving it and successfully achieving it. And we as a community, we have achieved it. And uh, we will have many more lives this month, many more lives next month, many more lives in the future. Our community is growing and growing very rapidly. Uh, We have been through some exciting, exciting twists and turns over the last couple of years. Books have been published. Debates have happened. Smear campaigns have been launched. World events have taken place. I remember the first time that there were 200 people watching this stream live was the day after Trump murdered Qasem Soleimani, after Donald Trump killed the Iranian general, Um, you know, then I remember suddenly I watched and the numbers on here, we were up to 200 and now there's barely a live that goes by that we don't hit 200. Uh, uh, so there you go. Writing the super chat down, by the way. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're, we're doing some amazing stuff. Um, we're doing some amazing stuff and we're going to keep going. We are five for five. Um, Hopefully, I'll be back, uh, you know, later this weekend. Tomorrow is going to be a very, very busy day for me. Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, some of what tomorrow will bring. Not everything, but uh, some of what's going on tomorrow we'll talk about. But I'm very excited. I am very, 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 very excited uh, about this community and what we're doing. I look at what the John Brown volunteers are doing. Shout out to them. They've got their own space on the Center for Political Innovation website great folks. I look at what Students and Youth for a New America is doing. Uh, I look at what our community does. I look at what the folks on Infrared are doing. I look at what the folks on, you know, Jackson Hinkle and his associates have been doing. I look at, I mean, this is an amazing thing. We are giving people real solid leftism. uh, And it's really, really amazing. Uh, You know, I tweeted out earlier today, real leftists, we're mad about war. We're mad about Big Pharma. Um, Thank you, old gringo, for your, thank you. Thank you very much for your super chat and for your kind words. You know, we real leftists, we're mad about war. Uh, We're mad about poverty. We're mad about big pharma. We're mad about exploitation of the working class. But the synthetic left, they're not mad about all of that. They're mad that working class people are mad about that in an politically incorrect way, right? And that's really, if you look at what a lot of these synth left people do, they're not really mad at at the crimes of capitalism. They're mad that there are working people waking up uh, and demanding things change. And they're doing it in, you know, they're not doing it. They're not following the rules in how they they get mad about it. So it's really kind of sad. We're not here to, uh, to, to try and protect the Eastern establishment, the Rockefellers, the DuPonts, the Carnegies, the Mellons, the Morgans. 
you know, Silicon Valley, Bill Gates, you know, uh, Jeff Bezos. We're not here to protect them from the upsurge of right-wing populism. We are here to demand socialism. Uh, we are here to oppose capitalism. We are here to stand with people around the world that are fighting for justice. We're here to stand with the anti-imperialist bloc of countries. We're here to stand with working families who want things better. We are not, we are not, uh, we are not the synthetic left. Uh, we are not defenders of the establishment. Uh, we are not attackers of anti-establishment folks. Uh, we are, we are opponents of the emerging global order, and we are fighting for a new global system, a new system of globalization in which countries' national sovereignty is respected, in which the banks, factories, and industries are organized to serve public good and not profits, in which poverty is being eradicated, in which human creativity and growth is no longer restrained. We are fighting for the genius of human beings, fighting for the creativity of human beings, fighting for the aspiration of human beings to build a better world and leave the world a better place than it was when they came into it, provide a better life for their children. That's what we're here for. Uh, and we're doing a great job. So hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell. Uh, the way we do things here, um, left avoid othering. Uh, the way we do things here is I give my opening remarks. After I give my opening remarks, from there, I do the roll call where I call you out as I see you, names and locations. And then after having written down all the super chats, uh, I then answer your super chats until the show is over. That's how the show works. That is how the cookie crumbles. I am going to probably not go too long tonight because I've got a big day tomorrow and I'm quite a bit tired, but we did five for five. We committed to doing five for five and we did five for five. And that that is an exhilarating feeling to be able to commit to something and do it. And we should all, you know, you should think of things in your life like that things that you struggle to do and hold yourself accountable that way. Make little goals like this. We did five for five. It's great. Um, all right. All right. So Brezhnev, Hussak, Honecker, and Zikov. Okay. I know who Brezhnev is and I know who Honecker is. I, the other names I'm not familiar with. Brezhnev, Honecker. All right. Um, so I just wanted to give my opening remarks. Um, so I'll give my opening remarks. I'll try to be brief. Um, you know, I'm not going to give too long of opening remarks, but I do want to talk about some things and give my opening remarks. And then from there, uh, do the roll call and then answer your super chat questions. So it's funny because a number of people were asking me if I was planning to talk about the patriotism, socialist patriotism debate. Um, and I mean, I, I'm not going to get on here and just straight up address that question because I've done that before many, many times, right? And that's raging. There's all these people that are furious with Jackson Hinkle. How dare he say that he's an American patriot? And I've addressed that. I've talked about how we represent the progressive side of American history. I've talked about at the same time that all the awful things were happening in U.S. history. There was people fighting back and resisting. Um, you know, I've talked about all of this. Um and I've addressed that question. So if you want to go see me address that question, go back to Monday where I talked about that for 40, 50 minutes straight. But there's an aspect of this, this debate that I think gets to something deeper. It gets to something 
much deeper. And that's what I wanted to talk to you all about. I wanted to talk to you all about today. Folks, uh, during the Vietnam War, there were many soldiers who turned against the war. Did you know that? There were many, many soldiers who turned against the Vietnam War. And they defected. In some cases, they shot or fragged their officers. Uh, a lot of them just went AWOL, right? They were absent without leave. They just quit the army. They just left. People talked about how in the height of the Vietnam War, 1970, 1971, in U.S. military bases, they would show um, they would show a movie at the military base. They would show uh, a movie, and before they showed the movie at the military base, they would play the national anthem. How in the movie theater on the military base, nobody would stand up. Nobody would stand up for the national anthem because that's how unimpressed with the war they were, right? Right, gosh. That's how alienated they were from the establishment. And, and U.S. soldiers on military bases, right, would not stand up for the national anthem. Um, you know, I've heard many stories like this from the Vietnam War era. I knew a lot of old communists who'd been active, and a number of them were Vietnam veterans. Not very many of them, but some of them were Vietnam veterans that I knew. And they would talk about what these years were like. They would talk about how, you know, if a soldier would quit and would defect, he could walk around everywhere and no one would say anything to him. He could walk around and say, you know, I'm, I'm deserting from the army. I walked away from the army. And people would go, okay, well, well that's what I would do if I was, if I was you. Um, you know, um, you know, obviously there were people who burned their draft cards. Obviously there were people who refused to fight. Obviously there were people who went to Canada to avoid fighting, but there were also a number of soldiers who in Vietnam refused to fight. One story that I heard um, is that apparently there was an African-American soldier from the United States in Vietnam. He was out on patrol. He was out on patrol. There's white guy standing next to him, another white guy standing next to him. They're walking through the jungle. Kaboom. White guy next to him, blown away. Kaboom. White guy next to him, blown away. And then he's standing there in the jungle and he hears a voice say in very broken English, black soldier, put down your gun. You are oppressed by the racist American ruling class, and we have no conflict with you. Thank you, Neil. Thank you very much, Neil Frazier. And I heard that story, and I can't verify it, but I heard it many times. Many times I heard that story. Ku uh, and Guinea. Many times I heard that story. And there's been this narrative sent out, uh, you know, about what happened in the 1960s. I grew up hearing it. 
right? That you know, you know, uh, that that uh, you know, the protesters were disrespecting our troops, and they spit on, they spit on the soldiers, and that's why no one should ever protest a war ever again. Because during the '60s, there were these hippies that hated America, and they were spitting on the soldiers and all of that. Well, if you look at what really happened. It was the opposite. The anti-war movement didn't spit on the soldiers. The anti-war movement recruited the soldiers. Uh, Jane Fonda had a whole tour uh, that she did called FTA, or F the Army, uh, where she did a whole show aimed at convincing U.S. Army soldiers to quit, to not fight in the war. She did this, you know, the FTA show. You can Google it. Uh, you know, there was the, the American Servicemen's Union, which was created by the Workers' World Party. It was headed by Andy Stapp, who I met. Um, you know, and Andy Stapp, a great man uh, who was in the army, was a communist. Um, you know, he formed the American Servicemen's Union, a union, a union of soldiers in the army. They had their list of demands. They had their own newspaper, and they were a union for soldiers. And they helped facilitate soldiers defecting from the military. Uh, there was the VVAW, the Vietnam Veterans Against the War, which was formed by John Kerry, but later it became connected to the Maoists, to the Revolutionary Communist Party, the Bobovakian people. And the anti-war movement worked really hard to recruit soldiers. Why? Why did it do that? They were against the war. Why would they want to recruit soldiers? Because the soldiers are who made the war happen. If you don't have any soldiers, you don't have a war. So getting the very people that were fighting the wars to change their minds and to realize that the war was wrong was a very necessary thing to do. Made sense. And I've heard from many anti-war activists from the era that soldiers would often seek out anti-war people just to debate them, just to argue with them. Because when you're a soldier in a war, you can't ignore it, right? You and I, we're living our ordinary lives. Maybe if we're real political, we study world events. But if you're a soldier and you're sent to Vietnam or you're sent to Afghanistan or you're sent to Iraq, that war is your life and you might die. And so making sure that it's you know, trying to find out what it's really about is very, very important. And I, I used to, you know, I used to hear the story of, you know, these, these GIs, you know, when they were on leave or whatever, they would go and try to find an anti-war protester. Who, who do you know who's a protester? And they would go track them down, not to agree with them, but to debate them, to make sure that the guy was wrong because their life was on the line. And that the anti-war movement got very good at arguing with soldiers. They had whole manuals and classes, how to debate a soldier, how to convince a soldier that the Vietnam War is wrong, that we shouldn't be in Vietnam. You could say the anti-war movement in the United States was obsessed, obsessed with convincing soldiers that the war was wrong, recruiting soldiers to the anti-war movement. You don't believe me? You know, there's a, an awful movie called Forrest Gump. It stars... Um, Oh, what's his name? Tom Hanks. It's an awful movie. It's actually really anti-left wing and stuff. But one accurate thing in the movie is it shows this. It shows that 
at anti-war protests, they often had soldiers be the main speakers and describe what was really going on in Vietnam. They had, you know, former, uh, former soldiers, you know, get up. You know, there were soldiers who gathered and they threw their medals over the White House fence. They threw back their medals. I heard stories of some of these old, these old, uh, you know, these old, old Vietnam veterans would get up at anti-war rallies. They would get on the bullhorn and they would shout, I'm a murderer. I killed innocent people. The Vietnamese just wanted to reunite their country. And I went over there. I was the colonizer. I was the occupier. I was the red coat. And they were the George Washingtons. This is the story of the anti-war movement. But now, one of the many deviations that I frequently see among the synthetic left one of the frequent deviations I see is I see people try to cancel soldiers who are now anti-war. You know, because, you know, there's this guy, there's an individual who, who has a podcast, who's a former soldier from Iraq, who became a member of Iraq Veterans Against the War, has spoken against the wars. And rather than saying, great, here's a guy who actually fought over there, who's turned against the wars, I see, I see hate on the internet. How dare they have a war criminal in their organization? How dare they? This guy served in the military. He has no right to be in any left-wing group. And I look at this and I'm perplexed. What is this? What in the world are these people talking about? I might not agree with this individual about this issue or that issue, but the fact that he used to be a volunteer who signed up to fight in the U.S. military, and he's changed his mind so much that he's now a communist, anti-imperialist, outspoken in opposition to the war is a good thing. We need many, many more people like this guy. So what in the world is going on that there is a desire to you know, instead of embracing this fellow, shaming him, who does he think he is? You know what? I, I find it perplexing. Very, very perplexing. Very, very, very perplexing. Very, very, very perplexing. And then I think about think about the movement to abolish slavery in the United States, the abolitionist movement. And I've talked about this on many different live streams, the abolitionist movement, right? There were some religious groups in the United States that were always opposed to slavery. Quakers were always opposed to slavery. Mennonites always were opposed to slavery. But there were a lot of religious groups that mm, they weren't really sure. But it was about 30 years before the U.S. Civil War, among white Americans in New England and eventually spreading to Ohio and Illinois, there was a mass religious movement called the Second Great Awakening. And it was Americans, American religious people, who were against slavery. And they had tent revival meetings, and, you know, and they, they were 
very religious and they engaged in all kinds of practices, speaking in tongues and a lot of the stuff we now associate with Pentecostalism. But one of their main messages was that slavery was wrong. And it was this mass religious group, mass religious movement, really. I mean, many different religious groups come out of that. Mormonism is descended from the Second Great Awakening. Um, you know, uh, the Seventh-day Adventist movement is descended from this time. Uh, you know, many, many different religious groups that are still a big part of the United States emerged in the, you know, in the 1830s, the 1820s, during this mass movement of religious fervor in the United States that was opposed to slavery, the Second Great Awakening. And probably one of the most famous American hymns, most famous American hymns from the from the, is, is from the Second Great Awakening. It's called Amazing Grace. And it was written by a slave trader. It was written by a guy who was a slave trader. And he, he was somebody who went to Africa and took people that were, you know, people that were slaves and, and took them from Africa to the United States. And many of them died along the way. He was a murderer. He was a slave trader. He was a murderer. He was, a, he was involved in a barbaric, horrendous practice. But... Supposedly, the story goes, we don't know what really happened, but according to the story, there was a thunderstorm on the sea and he feared for his life. And he knew deep down what he was doing was wrong. And when the storm cleared, told the, the ship, the sailors and all that, he said, we're turning this boat around. Turn the boat around. Didn't, didn't go to Africa, didn't trade any more slaves. And that man's song, you know, that he wrote was the anthem of the Second Great Awakening. And a big theme in the Second Great Awakening was forgiveness, was the idea that one can repent, the idea that one can recognize that what one did and his doing is wrong. And one can turn around and start doing something different. And that was a very big part, very big part of this. I hear stories of Gus Hall and Eugene Debs and William Z. Foster. Mark's bio. And the stories that I hear about them are interesting. You know, there's a book called Black Bolshevik. It's written by Harry Haywood, who was a leader of the Communist Party, who was an African-American. He talks about how when there was a strike in the coal mines in Pennsylvania, um, you know, it was white coal miners many of whom were racist, went on, went on strike. And so African-Americans would be hired as replacement labor. And he talked about in the late 20s when this coal strike happened, he went to Pennsylvania to urge African-Americans not to become scab laborers in the coal mine and not to do that. He talks about that and how he went and his job was to try and convince African-Americans 
not to not to scab on the strike. And why would African-Americans scab on, on the strike when the union is racist, when labor unions are whites only, when labor unions in effect keep black people from getting jobs? It makes sense why black people would hate the labor movement. A lot of black, black people really hated the labor movement because the labor movement was racist. Uh, the labor movement, you know, the American Federation of Labor, uh, it barred black people from getting jobs in coal mines, getting jobs in, in meatpacking facilities. If it was a union plant, no black person could work there. They talked about how unions used to have what they called hate strikes, where the, uh, one black person would come into the factory, all the workers would stop working until the boss got that black person out of there. That's called a hate strike. Um, and the, the unions were known, notorious, for having hate strikes, they were called. And it wasn't just against black people. Sometimes it would be against foreign-born workers. Sometimes it would be against non-English speaking workers. Sometimes it would be against Roman Catholic workers. Sometimes it would be against women, you know, you know sailors. Uh, you know, used to refuse any woman to be allowed on their ship, right? If a woman came onto their ship for any reason, they would stop working. They, they, they said, oh, women are bad luck. It's bad luck to have a woman on a ship. You know, if a woman came onto the ship, all the sailors would go on strike until that woman got off the, sh off the ship. These things happened. It was awful. It was awful. But when did the labor movement win great victories. When did it win its greatest victories? You know, really the moment where the American labor movement was really on fire and kicking ass was the 1934. It was the summer of 1934. And in 1934, there was the Great Depression happening. And the Teamsters went on strike in Minneapolis, led by the Trotskyites. In Toledo, Ohio, the auto light workers who worked at an electrical power plant, they went on strike. And then in San Francisco, the dock workers of San Francisco went on strike. And the docks are very important because that's how so many products get into the country. And the dock workers of San Francisco had gone on strike many times, but their strikes were never successful. Why? Because generally when the dock workers of San Francisco would go on strike, black people would be hired as replacement laborers. But that didn't happen this time. And why did it not happen? Well, it didn't happen because the Communist Party was leading this strike. It wasn't led by the phony AFL. It wasn't led by Social Democrats. It was led by the Communist Party. And the Communist Party went to the black community and they said, one of the demands of our strike will be that black people are hired to work on the docks. We're going to demand that we get a hiring hall. We get to decide who gets to work on the docks and who doesn't. People will get hired through the union. They'll get hired through the union, and we will make sure there are black dock workers in San Francisco. And furthermore, the Communist Party had a lot of respect in the black community for opposing Jim Crow segregation, for promoting the rights of African Americans, for their black belt thesis, calling for an independent black republic and in the territories of the United States uh, that, that the black people were concentrated in, in the, in the South. And because of that, the Communist Party was able to unify the black community and the Teamsters Union 
and other unions in the city to back and support the dock workers. And the dock workers of San Francisco went on strike. And it was a general strike. The city of San Francisco shut down. Dock workers won union representation. It was a national emergency. No ships were being unloaded. It forced the bosses to the table. The 1934 San Francisco general strike is a big deal in U.S. history. It's a very big deal in U.S. history. And the way the Communist Party won that huge victory was by convincing a union of white workers who were racist to abandon their racism. That's, that's how they did it. The 1934 general strike wave. And those three strikes that I just mentioned, right? San Francisco, Minneapolis, Toledo. They weren't the only ones. All throughout the South in 1934, there were sharecroppers unions among poor, low-income farmers across the South who went on strike. In South Carolina, they declared a state of emergency, and the military was called out to stop the sharecroppers' strikes. And those unions that the Communist Party built that were sharecropper unions, they were interracial. They were black and white together. And that was illegal at the time. In southern states, it was illegal. It was illegal for black and white people to be in the same organization, in the same labor union. But it didn't matter. They did it anyway. And the stories you hear. The stories you hear of white workers going to a Communist Party meeting and seeing that there are black people there and being very uncomfortable. Then Gus Hall starts giving a talk. William Z. Foster starts speaking, explaining that racism is the reason that Poverty is so widespread in the South. Racism is the reason that there's not a strong labor movement in the South. That playing black and white against each other is dividing the working class. That racism is a tool of the bosses to divide the working class, to hurt all working people by giving white workers a little bit of privilege. You hear the story of white workers who previously had been members of the Ku Klux Klan. Hearing this, taking their Ku Klux Klan membership cards out and ripping them up, signing up to join the Communist Party. This is the history of our movement. This is our history. You know, I'm talking about the Vietnam War talking about the struggle to abolish slavery. I'm talking about the labor movement of the 1930s. This is us. That's, that's who we are. If you're a communist in the United States, that's you. May not have been your ancestors. Your ancestors might've been doing something else. Doesn't matter. If you've declared yourself in the United States to be a communist, that is the movement that you are joining. This is your heritage. Communists in the United States are part of a long tradition 
of progressive organizers who have fought for justice against war, against racism, against the exploitation of the working class, to build unions, to win women the right to vote. And this is us. And when socialism comes to the United States, it will be this current. This is the history of our movement. Our movement in the United States, our movement to end the Vietnam War, our movement to abolish slavery, our movement uh, to build organized labor unions, our movement in the United States has always been about finding people who are wrong and convincing them to do what is right. That has always been what our movement is about. Our movement has actively gone out to try and find people who are wrong and convince them to be right. That is what we do. During the Vietnam War, we encouraged the soldiers not to fight. During the Vietnam War, we went to people who were supporting the war and tried to convince them not to support the war during the time of slavery. We went to people who supported slavery and we convinced them that slavery was wrong and got them not to support slavery anymore and to become abolitionists and to oppose slavery. And eventually we got the whole country to mobilize, to defeat slavery. You know, Harriet Tubman was the first woman to lead U.S. soldiers into battle. But August Willick was a communist who was a Union, organize, uh, a Union Army general. Uh, and he was, you know, he led the Ohio 9th Regiment. You had labor unions supporting the struggle to abolish slavery. You had industrial capitalists. You know, a broad coalition was built, um, was built by Abraham Lincoln to defeat slavery during the period of the labor movement. We convinced people that joining a union was a good thing, that it would benefit them to join a union. We convinced people who were not in the union that boycotting in support of the union, striking in solidarity with the union was a good thing. We convinced unions to abandon their racism and a black and white united fight and to, to get racism out of the labor movement because it hurt the labor movement. I mean, this is, this is who we are as a movement, our movement has always, always, always been a movement that was about changing people's minds. It was about redemption. It was about repentance. It was about turning people around. It was about shifting. It was about changing people. And when we had that attitude, when we went to people who were wrong and convinced them to be right, we were successful. And that's how we changed the mind of the country. And we, revolutionaries, socialists, we have changed the mind of the country many times, right? Many times we have changed the minds of the country. There used to be a feeling that 
slavery was fine. But it took very dedicated revolutionaries and abolitionists, people like Karl Marx, people like John Brown, people like Harriet Beecher Stowe, people like the Great Awakening, to convince people that slavery was wrong. It took people, took people like Gus Hall and William Z. Foster to convince people that unions were right and to convince people that labor, that labor and the labor movement should reject racism. It took people like Students for a Democratic Society and the Workers' World Party and the, the, you know, the Revolutionary Youth Movement and the W.E.B. Du Bois clubs. It took people like that to convince the American people that overwhelmingly supported the Vietnam War to change their minds and realize the Vietnam War was wrong. It was a murderous war to serve U.S. imperialism. Our movement has always been about finding people who were wrong and convincing them to be right. Now, that is, that is what our movement is all about, historically. That is not, that is absolutely not what it's about anymore. They want to cancel Mike Preisner. I guess I said his name. I didn't say his name before. What is this, right? And now I see the patriotism argument, the patriotism debate go in some very strange places. I've spent my entire life as an anti-imperialist, anti-war activist, progressive, trying to convince Americans that these wars are bad for them. What did we chant? Money for jobs and education, not for war and occupation. We chanted jobs, not war. Schools, not war. We'd show the military budget of the United States, this astronomical military budget. We'd say, what if this was spent on schools? What if this was spent on health care? We'd show the American people these wars are not benefiting them. They're benefiting Wall Street. They're benefiting, you know, the, the military industrial complex, but they're not benefiting the American people. And while they're unpaving the roads across the United States, they're dropping million dollar bombs on Iraq. You know, we had a bumper sticker. I remember I used to, I put up this bumper sticker in many places in New York. Statue of Limitations has probably run out, so they can't arrest me, I don't assume. I put them in places that one is not supposed to put bumper stickers. There was a bumper sticker, I remember, that we had. I put it up many places across this city. It said every single cruise missile they drop on Libya could pay the salaries of 24 teachers in New York State. I slapped that bumper sticker all across this city. Every single 
cruise missile. Every single cruise missile they drop on Libya could pay the salary of 24 teachers in New York State. You know, we put that everywhere to show people these wars are not benefiting them. That beating down and destroying countries so that Wall Street can rake in the super profits, this isn't benefiting them. But all across the internet, I see a bunch of people that say, no, the wars do benefit the American people. I see people across the internet saying, no, it's because of these wars that the Americans live in luxury. Now, there's, they're, ha they're not entirely wrong, right? We know about the aristocracy of labor, right? We know about that. We know that workers here in this country enjoy a much higher standard of living than workers in many parts of the, the world. Now that's changing, right? And because we're at the center of the empire, we get bigger crumbs than most people compared to people in Africa, compared to people in South America, yes. But our long-term interest is not, absolutely not in supporting these wars. Our long-term interest is with the working class in the rest of the world, standing in solidarity to dismantle American empire and build a socialist future. And the job of communists in the United States is not to go around telling people around the world that, that imperialism benefits America, not to tell people in the United States, did you know you benefit from imperialism? That is not our job. Our job is to do the opposite. Our job is to show people that these wars are not benefiting them that they should stand in solidarity with the people of Vietnam and the people of Cuba and the people of Iraq and the people of Afghanistan and fighting against imperialism. Our job is to convince the American working class to join arm in arm with their class brothers against imperialism. However, there are a number of people on the internet who don't feel that that is their job. They feel that their, their job is to go around and give the middle finger to other Americans and tell them, you're a dirty, rotten Euro settler. You benefit from these wars. You're an evil person. America is evil. I hate you. Well, it's not a very convincing argument. Not a very convincing argument. If you approach things that way, I have to admit, there's a big chunk of these leftists on the internet who they don't really ever imagine achieving socialism in the United States. In fact, they're quite disgusted if you ever bring it up. Furthermore, they don't ever imagine convincing average Americans who might hold right-wing or racist or anti, you know, uh, pro-imperialist view. They, they don't ever can consider trying to convince them, you know, convince people that disagree with them. They don't even consider that. They just see leftism as a way to feel superior. They see leftism as a way to get their anger out. Leftism is a way that they can give voice to the feeling that they have that the society they live in is evil. They can yell and scream at everyone else around them 
They can tell everyone around them that they're evil and they can, the, the feelings that they already have that don't really have to do with politics, the negative feelings they have, the resentment, sadness, the loneliness, the hopelessness, the rage that they have can get expressed through politics. Through politics, they've learned that U.S. society as it currently exists is an imperialist society, is a racist society, is, you know, founded on slavery, genocide of native peoples, exploitation of the third world. And with that knowledge, they can feel that their inner psychological turmoil is justified. The resentment they already have, the rage they already have, the sadness they already have, the loneliness they already have, the hopelessness they already have is justified because they read in a book, they learned that this society is what it is. They used leftist theory. Leftist theory validated their resentment. It said, you don't feel like you fit in in society. You don't feel like you have a place in society. You have issues with your family. You are worried about ever being able to support yourself financially. You're not having good opportunities to find a job. You feel like you've been abandoned. You feel like you've been forgotten. You feel like, you know, you feel like you are not respected. And now we have come up with a, an academic theory. We've come up with an academic theory that validates that the society around you is evil. The society around you is deeply, deeply problematic and needs to be overthrown. Um, all right, Vietnam today. And basically, um, with those feelings, uh, you can feel justified in your negative feelings. And in fact, for a lot of them, I feel like they can escape the more direct causes of those feelings. This was me too, okay? I'll just be real with you, right? I, I would be a total hypocrite if I didn't admit that this was me, okay? But for a lot of us who turn to leftism, we're angry, we're upset, we're resentful, and some of it is political, sure. Some of it is, you know, we realize that, you know, some of it is, some of it is deeply wrapped up in politics. I mean, I grew up in a very conservative town and everyone was religious and conservative and neocons and I couldn't stand that. So for me, you know, it was, it was very much frustrating to deal with those folks and I felt alienated from them and such. And so it was political, but there was other stuff going on there. Stuff I'm not going to discuss on these streams, stuff related to my family, stuff related to my life. But I wasn't at a point where I could deal with that. I wasn't at a point where I could have that conversation. That was stuff I wasn't ready to face. I was not yet ready to face that. That stuff, right? Neoliberalism or reactionary middle class, right? I wasn't ready to face that. And so by just making it all political, I could avoid dealing with, I could avoid dealing with some of the more direct stuff, some of the more direct issues that there were in my life, which again, I'm not going to get into, but you know, there were, yes, politics was there and politics is still there. I still get frustrated about politics, but at the same time, there were some more direct issues that were causing me to be upset. 
And I wasn't ready to deal with that. So making it all about politics was a way to avoid it. And I just want to urge people. I want to urge people to really think about why it is that you're a leftist. Are you a leftist because you just don't fit in with society? Are you a leftist because you're hurting inside? Are you a leftist because you have a lot of anger? Or are you a leftist because you think we can win? I'm just asking you that. If you don't think we can win, you shouldn't be doing this. If you don't think we can win, I, I, I think you should stop. Really, we don't need you if you don't think we can win. If you're not in this to win it, you're in this to do something emotional, um, you know, maybe you ought to play some video games. Uh, maybe you ought to see a psychiatrist. Uh, you know, maybe you ought to play sports. Uh, maybe you ought to, you know, go bowling. Uh, you know, uh, maybe you ought to, uh, you know, write uh, dark fan fiction. I don't know. But if you're not in this to win it, if you're in this for something other than winning, you shouldn't be here, right? I mean, I, I mean, I'm being serious. If you don't actually want to see a socialist America, you don't actually want to see a society where the banks, factories, and industries are organized to serve public good and not profits. If you're not in this to actually, to actually get beyond the horrors of capitalism, if you're not in this to actually dismantle U.S. imperialism, you shouldn't be doing this. Now, we can't all give the whole of our lives to this. We can't all be John Brown volunteers. I'm not even a John Brown volunteer. I have a, I have a career. I'm a reporter. You know, I go and I work in my office every day and I, I, I got a wife and family to take care of, you know, but these John Brown volunteers, those are people that can give their whole lives to this. And I respect that. And I, there was a time where I was a full-time revolutionary. I'm not that anymore. I might again. I don't know. Life takes you in different places. Um, right. Aesthetics. Vince, give me a rock. Right. Um, okay. Aesthetics. Vince. Killing. The Rockies. Rhyme. Against. Humanity. You know, but, you know, not everyone can be full-time and give their life to this and not do anything else. It's very hard to maintain, you know, the finances to, to do it. You know, I mean, these John Brown volunteers are struggling. You know, they're, they're going to keep struggling. I don't just want to fight. I want to win, says Chance. Well, then we need you, you know. Um, but if you're not in this to win, I mean, if you're in this to just get your feelings out, you really, you really don't, don't really don't really belong calling yourself a socialist or a communist or a revolutionary. Um, I mean, you know, I mean, look, you know, we all have different levels of commitment that we can make. We all have different, different levels of activism that we can maintain. We all have different levels of contribution we can make, and that's fine, right? Some of us can do a lot. Some of us can do a little. Some of us can contribute in some ways, and some of us in others. Some of us can do great online activism, but It'll be very hard to, to get to any any event. Some of us, you know, can produce content. Some of us can make financial contributions. There's many ways that all of us can help out, right? There are different ways 
we can all help out. We all have a role to play, but we should be in this because we see it succeeding. I mean, we think we are actually going to win. If you don't think we're going to win, what are you doing? Right. I mean, I, I mean, what are you doing? If, if, and, and if, if you're not in this to win it, what are you doing? But then that leads me to the overall point that I'm making, which is that if we're in this to win it, we should want many, many, many Mike Preisners in our movement. If we're in it to win it. We should want many, many, many ex-racists in our movement, ex-Trumpers in our movement. If we're in it to win it, we should want a, a diversity of people who might not agree with us, you know? Imagine if if a big chunk of the people that were, you know, I used to meet them all the time. I used to meet them, people that, you know, they didn't really know much about politics, but they were against abortion, they were against gay marriage, religious, Bible kind of people. Imagine if, if we could get a chunk of them to say, you know what, I'm still against abortion, I'm still against gay marriage, but gosh darn it, capitalism is an evil system and I'm for socialism. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't it be amazing if, if we could get, you know, people who may not agree, you know, you know, uh, about one issue or another to say, well, I don't agree with you on this. I don't agree with you on that, but I'm for socialism and socialism is what we need. And, and this imperialist system has got to go. Wouldn't it be amazing? Wouldn't it be amazing if there would be, if, if people that, you know, people that used to believe that the problem was QAnon and the problem was, you know, uh, what is it? You know, the, the satanic pedophile ring would say, well, you know, I don't know if they're pedophiles or not, but they're capitalists and they're exploiting the workers and we're waging wars for them. And I'm, I'm opposed to it. Wouldn't it be great? And if we're going to win, we, we ought to be thinking about that. We ought to be thinking about how we can get a broad coalition of people to oppose these wars, to oppose imperialism. That's what we ought to be doing. There, there could be room for people in, in, look, if you're against a war with China, I don't care if you don't agree with me that China's socialist. If you say, well, China's not socialist, it's state capitalist, but you oppose all the war, you oppose the war drive against it, you oppose the, you know, the spreading of lies about it, local, you know, great. Right? Great. Locally elected socialists. CPC. Wouldn't it be great? I mean, I mean, I mean, again, if we actually are going to win, that would be great. But if we're not going to win, if this is just about dealing with some psychological issues or getting your anger out or, you know, being being full of hate, I mean, then, you know, and then, I mean, I understand why you wouldn't, um, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't share such sentiments, but the object is to win. The point is to win, is it not? The point is to change people. The point is to convince people who are wrong to be right. The point is, the point was during the Vietnam War to convince people who supported the war to oppose it. The point during slavery was to convince people who supported slavery to oppose it. The point during the labor movement was to convince people that labor unions were good after the bosses and the capitalists told them that they were wrong. 
The point is, if I'm not mistaken, to convince racist labor unions to abandon their racism. I mean, I mean, the point, that is the point. This is how you change societies. You take people who used to be wrong, you convince them to be right. I feel like this is very elementary. This is very basic stuff. I'm saying, I'm not saying deeply complicated things. I'm not saying things that should be very hard to understand, but in the toxic online left, that has been forgotten. In the toxic online left, it's about something else. Well, look, I gave you, I explained to you why this was correct during the Vietnam War. I explained to you why this was the correct approach during slavery. I explained to you why this was the correct approach during the labor movement. But you know, this is just what successful political movements do. This is just what successful mass movements of any kind do. This is just what they do. Is they convince people to change their ways. They, they get people to change the way that they're going. They get people to admit that what they were doing before is wrong. They get people to switch. This is just a basic thing. Just a very basic, very, very basic thing. And the way you do that, the way you convince people to change, is you give them love. It's with love that people can change. You know, if someone's if someone's not worth changing, you can't love them, obviously. I mean, I, I mean, you know, I mean, I'd like to think we can love everyone. But honestly, in order to get someone to change, you have to see the good in them. You have to see the good in them. You have to find whatever goodness there is within them, and you have to appeal to that goodness. Someone's awful in so many ways. Someone's horrible. You have to find the one good thing in them. You have to connect with that one good thing. You have to use that one ray of goodness in them to illuminate the rest of them. I mean, that is, that is generally how these things are done. Right? I mean, I mean, if you if you want to change somebody, I mean, some people you, you can't change, right? But if you want to change somebody, you can't hate them. If you hate somebody, you're not going to change them. If you hate somebody, you will not change them. I can tell you that much. Nobody ever says, wow, I got hated. And so many people hated me and somebody was just so hateful to me and they just hated me and hated me and hated me and hated me and they hated me and they hated me and they hated me and boy they they told me I was rotten they cussed me out and you know after a after a while I said by god they're right no no you don't change people by hating them you don't you do not change people by hating them you might demolish people by hating them you might kill people by hating them. You know, hating them might enable you to kill them more effectively. Hating them might be, might enable you to, to, you know, to inflict suffering upon them, to isolate, but it doesn't change them. 
It doesn't change their attitude, doesn't change their perspective. You know, man, it does not change them. It doesn't change them. You just hate somebody. It doesn't change them very much. It's highly unlikely to change them. The way you change people is you find you find some common ground and you expand on it. You see things through their perspective. You understand what is important to them. You understand what is important to them. And from there, you try to you you try to you try to make an argument you try to frame things in a way that they can relate to this is pretty basic and when somebody changes right when somebody changes when somebody used to be of one perspective and they adopt your perspective that is a huge victory It's a huge victory when someone changes their perspective. When you when you have got somebody who vehemently disagrees with you, but you're able to get them to shift their view. That's a victory. That's a huge victory. That means you're making progress. That means you're achieving what you want to achieve. Some people are not worth the time. Absolutely right. But those who are and those who can be changed or those who seek you out and have an awakening on their own and do change, those are the ones that you should celebrate the most. It's only going to be with more and more people like that that things are going to get better. This is pretty basic stuff in our movement. Pretty basic stuff. And if you're in it to win it, you will seriously think about these things. Because right now, the atmosphere uh, that has been created around the left is not one that enables people to change. One of the videos that right-wingers make, there's a very common theme that they make. They, their videos are called How I Left the Left. That's what they're called. They're called How I Left the Left. And these right-wingers make these videos, How I Left the Left. And right-wingers share them. And right-wingers watch them. And no one goes, Oh my God, you used to be left. You're evil. No. The right-wing embraces these people. Oh, you used to be left. And then you got sick of the toxic atmosphere. So now you're a right winger. And the right wing embraces those folks. Whereas on the left, it's not enough to simply be not on the right. No, everyone on the left is secretly a Nazi. Everyone on the left is secretly a Nazbol. Everyone on the left is secretly a transphobe. Everyone on the left is secretly a, 
you know, well, you you don't agree with me about this issue. Well, you're not really a leftist. You're a t- closet Trumper pretending to be a leftist. What? You disagree with me about this? Well, that means that you're actually a crypto blah, blah, blah. You know, oh, sure. Well, you know, there's no, I will not tolerate. I mean, it's they create this. Um, all right. Abolish institutional employment. They create this in this this atmosphere. They create this atmosphere where even in the left, people aren't forgiven. Even on the left, disagreement isn't tolerated. Even on the left, I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, they think Jimmy Dore is a Nazi. Seriously, I think David Rovix, one of the greatest. Anarchist musicians, you think he's a Nazi? Really? If you're never, you're never able to be trusted on the left. You're never able. You're never able to work with people you don't agree with on everything on the left. You're never able to able to change your views if you've made one mistake and then for the rest of your I mean, you know, you can never have a conversation about it. If people, you know, if you got the goods on everybody, oh, I know this person's bad because one time they tweeted this out and that proves that they're an evil person. I mean, pretty soon there's not going to be anybody left. Pretty soon there's not going to be very many people left. Pretty soon the circular firing squad will run out of people to shoot. Meanwhile, on the right, the tent just keeps getting bigger. You know, Donald Trump said he, you know, he's so happy to see Republicans clapping for LGBT rights. He's got Mike Pence, who's virulently homophobic and was in favor of, you know, you know, therapy to try and cure people with being LGBT, et cetera. But then you got Trump, you know, and he says that Bruce Jennings or what is it, you know, uh, Caitlyn Jenning Jenner can go to his bathrooms and, you know, you know, they're strategic about it. But on the left, oh, no, you disagree. You're a Nazi. You're a, you know, oh, you talk to somebody, you're disgusting. You pretty soon... Pretty soon the right is going to have lots of people. Pretty soon the left is going to be pretty small. I mean, and if we if we can't come to terms with this, we can't come to terms with this. We can't recognize how problematic these habits or if we can't recognize the the destructiveness of the way left-wing circles are functioning, it's going to be too late pretty soon. It's going to be too late. Now, 
you know, there are people that are out to get me, which I'm sure you all know about, which I will not answer any questions about, by the way. You know, I mean, if I, if you, as people have super chatted me about some of these people and if you, I will not, I mean, if you super chat me about one of these people, I'm going to reply, I'll give you the answer of, I don't talk about those people and move on. But, um, you know, I mean, there are people that are very desperate to destroy me and I am, I am shocked by it. I am, I am utterly shocked by it utterly shocked by it. I mean, it, it's, it's weird. All right. It's odd. It's strange. Um, people with much bigger platforms than I have, you know, and they are so, they are so upset with what we do on this channel. They are so angry that we publish books, we have YouTube live streams, we, you know, and, um, you know, I, I don't know what the, I don't know what it's about. I really don't know what it's about. Um, you know, and they're obsessed. They're just obsessed with, with me, with you, you know, I mean, they are just obsessed. Um, well, of course it threatens them. And thank you, old Ringo. I mean, and it's weird. Um, it's weird. You know, you think that they could do their own thing. You know, they could make their own content, which they do, right? I mean, you think, I mean, why is what we do here bothering them, right? But they are just so determined to stop what we are doing here. And you have to wonder, you have to wonder why. Why is that? Why is what we do here so offensive to these people? Why? I mean, of all the things to get mad about, why? Why? I mean, what, what, you know, we're on here talking about socialism in a way that you don't like and what? We're not bothering you in any conceivable way. We're, we're just doing our own thing, but no, no, you, you've got to, you got to spread, spread lies, spread half truths, spread rumors. You've got to just, oh, you're so, no, 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 they can't be on there. You know, I mean, you know, and I mean, look, right? I can get mad about it. I'm obviously the face, as you can see, the face of all of this. But if anyone's mad about it, it should be you. It should be you. I mean, these people, these people are are calling you. They're they're calling you a Nazi and they're calling you stupid. That's what they're doing. Right? If you watch these lives, you know I'm not on here advocating white supremacism. You know I'm not ad on here preaching anti-Semitism or bigotry of any kind. Furthermore, if you watch these streams, um, you know, uh, you, you know, you know that you are not a, a neo-Nazi. You are not a white supremacist. You're not a fascist. But according to them, either you're an idiot because clearly everything I say is just a vast coded message. You know of white supremacy, or or you yourself are in the fascist conspiracy. So every single person watching this right now should realize that they are actively calling you a Nazi and an idiot at the same time. That's what they're saying about you. A lot of you watching aren't white. A lot of you watching are not male. A lot of you watching are not heterosexual, you know, cisgender. 
But yet they say that you, you are the equivalent of a Ku Klux Klansman. You are the equivalent of a brown shirt swastika. You are the same as people who go around hitting, uh, committing hate crimes. That's what they're saying about you. You know, forget what they say about me. I'm just a dude, right? This is what they're saying about you. Either you're so stupid you can't figure out my my vast, maniacal, evil, fascist message, and you're you're duped by it, or you're in on our hateful, bigoted plot. You know, that's what they think. Does that make you angry? Makes me angry. Makes me angry. It would make me angry. If someone thought I was so stupid I couldn't tell, I could listen for hours and hours and hours to somebody talk. I could listen for hours of streams. I could watch hours of video and, and think someone was progressive when they were actually secretly a Nazi. Or someone thought I was a Nazi just because I listened to an anti-racist, Marxist, progressive commentator. I would be furious. I would be boiling with rage. And you should be boiling with rage. They would say that about you. They would say that about you, right? And that's what they're doing. They, they, they are preaching vicious hatred for you right? Me, whatever. Yeah, I'm here. I, I'm, I'm the direct target. But I wouldn't be anything without you all watching. I wouldn't be anything without you all watching. I wouldn't be anything without you all participating in the chat. I wouldn't be anything without you all donating on Patreon, sending super chats. Um, you know, ML Red Square on the Lower East Side, right? So that's what they're saying about you. That's, that, is, that is their message about you. Um, and that doesn't fill you with rage. I don't know what does. Now, I guess, I guess I will just end by saying this. I'll end the opening remarks by saying this, which is, you know, I would urge you not to be provoked. Don't be provoked, right? They say when you're playing chess, when you're playing a game of chess, the way you win is you anticipate what your opponent is going to do before they do it. Now, I've gotten out of my habit of playing chess. I need to get back into the habit. I kind of, for some reason, with the pandemic and with chess.com having changed its setup, I've gotten out of my chess playing habit. I need to get back to playing chess. The way you win at chess is you anticipate what your opponent is going to do don't let them win at chess. They're anticipating us to react they're anticipating that we will react in a certain way. That we'll react at the first opportunity that we get. We won't. No, there, there will be retaliation at some point. We will hold these people accountable for what they've done. But we won't do it at the first opportunity we get. We won't do it at the second opportunity we get. In fact, we may not even do it ourselves. We may just sit back and watch it happen. I, I don't have one. Um, we may just have to sit back and watch it happen. 
But folks who folks who act this way, folks who act this way have a pretty strong pattern of ending up in other ways. I've observed this over the years. Many others have observed it. You know, you can talk about from a spiritual angle, you can talk about karma. I'm not here talking about karma. But these things have a way of working themselves out. They do. These things have a way of working themselves out. And I have a feeling they're going to work themselves out. Some things will be addressed. Some things will be taken care of. But again, let me urge you to show restraint. Show some restraint. Show some restraint. Don't, don't let them anticipate your next move. Don't let them see it coming. Because we will win. Oh, we will win. We will win. There will be some repentance. There will be some forgiveness. There will be some turning around. There will be some backing away. There will be some apologizing. And that's all I'm going to say. I don't want to say too much more. I don't know too much more. But I know more than you might think I know. I get all kinds of bits of information every so often. I could have put a lot more in the bread tube book. I could have put a lot more in the bread tube book. There were some individuals I chose not to put in the bread tube book. I didn't think they were worth it. And more information just keeps coming. I'm not the only enemy these people have made. I may not have to do anything. I may not have to do anything. I may be able to just sit back read some posts about it on social media at some point. But some stuff is going to happen. Let me just put it that way. Some stuff is going to happen. And yeah, could be interesting. Could be interesting. That's all I can say. Again, I, I, you know, I almost don't even want to say that because, you know, what I know is very unspecific. What I know is very, very unspecific and it almost doesn't really matter. I mean, it has nothing to do with me. I could just sit here. I could just sit here. I, if I didn't exist, things that are going to happen would happen anyway. I mean, I'm not... I'm not a player in all of this, but 
Yeah. Destructive. Destructive entities are very good at destroying themselves. Let me just put it that way. You know, we talk about capitalism and the problem of overproduction. And the capitalist is constantly driving to produce as much as he can, pay the worker as little as he can to produce it. Pretty soon, the worker cannot buy back the product he produces and the capitalist system comes to a grinding halt. You know, you know what I'm talking about? I mean, that's the, the workers didn't do that. Capitalism did. The tendency of the falling rate of profit. Right? All I mean, I mean, the, the capitalism frequently has gluts and crises coming down on its own weight, falling upon their own swords. And that's how these things work. Meanwhile, we're doing something different here. We're doing something very, very different here. We are doing something very, very, very different here. What we're doing here is we're building a community. What we're doing here is we're giving people something to believe in. What we're doing here is we're giving people love and kindness and hope and optimism. We are constructive socialists. We are optimistic socialists. We believe in hope. We believe we can win. We believe in redemption. We believe that those who are wrong can one day be convinced to be right. We believe that people can change. We believe situations are constantly changing, that A does not equal A. We give love. We give kindness. We build solidarity. We mobilize our class. We demand a government of action that will fight for working families. We're doing something completely different here. Someone in this chat going by, they just said, as you sow, so shall you reap. Indeed, as you sow, so shall you reap. We are sowing, sowing a very good crop. There are some other folks that have been sowing, sowing a lot of negativity, sowing a lot of hate and sowing lots of destruction, sowing lots and lots of destruction around the world. And I hope they're watching right now. I doubt they are. I really doubt they're watching right now. But in the slim chance that they're watching, I would encourage them to think about what they've been sowing around the world. And I would encourage them. I would deeply encourage them. I would encourage them to repent. I would encourage them to turn, turn the ship around. I would encourage them to back away slowly. Because eventually, the Titanic hits an iceberg. Eventually, the Hindenburg goes down. Eventually, Eventually, the capitalist produces so many products 
What he pays the workers so little produce them that no one could buy them back. Eventually, eventually what comes up must come down. And meanwhile, we're just doing we're just doing the same thing we've always done. We're just moving ahead. Same speed we've been moving ahead at. So on that note, folks, I will end my opening remarks. I probably wasn't even supposed to say that last part, but sometimes your emotions get the better of you and you say things you didn't set out to say. I spoke from the heart, and I will probably come to regret that someday, but that's okay. Names and locations, names and locations. Who's with us? Names and locations. Names and locations, names and locations. Who's with us? Who's with us? Ash in Chicago, Los Angeles, Northern California, Kendall in San Diego, Nate in Chicago, California, Dylan Smau, Old Gringo, Lucha in Mississippi, Richie in Staten Island, Shia in Montreal, Calgary, Canada, Carolyn, Dario with Tomorrow in His Heart from Brooklyn, Kansas City, Missouri, Auckland, New Zealand, San Antonio, Texas, Kansas City, Clyde Bank, Captain Waffles, Treasure Coast, Florida, Linwood, California, Northern California, Io, Hillary, and Manhattan. Shout out to you. Springfield, Missouri, Jesse in D.C., JT24 in Mississippi, Midwest, Rees from Adelaide, Australia, Alex in Austin, Texas, Scoutland, Enoch, Australia. We appreciate it, Caleb, says Kinky. Well, thank you. St. Louis, Dan Keating. Vinicius from Brazil, Northern California, Cincinnati, Ohio, Mindanao to Midwest, Mo in Toronto. Hello, Caleb, Mark from California, much love. Frank, Rhode Island, West Virginia. Um, greetings from Western Massachusetts. Maine, unfortunately, Sam in Australia, Pomona, California, Northern California. Uh, it's me from Chicago, Corona, California with Fender's guitar. All right, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Drew in Auckland, Bolivar, Mosin from Iran, Republic of Hawaii, Australia mate, uh, Neil Fraser in Hong Kong, Illinois, Melbourne, Trevor in Ireland, Melbourne, Australia, Jordan, Tristan in Maryland, Tristan in Maryland. Wow. Wow, folks, so great. Indonesia, RD Jenny is in Indonesia, Fort Lauderdale, Fort Lauderdale, very good. Naples, Florida. Tashar Gadi from Connecticut. Welcome, welcome. Welcome, welcome. All right, all right. St. George, Utah. Nord Stream 2. What are the consequences of Nord Stream 2? Well, the biggest consequence of Nord Stream 2 is that there's going to be more distance between the United States and Western Europe and the NATO countries. That's very clear. The fact the United States tried to kill the Nord Stream 2 pipeline as it did. The fact that there will be less natural gas imported to the European Union countries from the United States, and it will be supplemented by, excuse me, by Russia. Um, that's going to result in political distance. There will be political dif distance between the USA and the NATO countries. That's going to happen. Um, that is definitely going to happen. There's going to be political distance. That's going to be the main consequence is that, especially with Brexit and the European Union no longer having Britain in it, um, and now Nord Stream 2, there's going to be political distance between Western Europe and the United States. That's clear. All right. Um, how does should the left avoid othering people? Um, yeah. I mean, look, again, as some people said, there are some people that are not worth trying to change. It's a lost cause and you'll only get frustrated. But there are some people that we should try to talk to. And again, 
<sighs> Excuse me. You don't change people. Um, you don't change people by looking for their flaws. You change people by looking for the goodness in them and where you can find common ground. So, you know, when you're when you're looking at people in a hostile way, when you're othering people, when you're putting people in a category, um, you know, you generally don't um, you don't have a, have the ability to influence them. Um, there's no question about that. Um, othering people. You know, and that, you know, sure, I guess I guess Chai is saying she meant left populism in general. Well, yeah, I mean, populism that's about marginalizing people, populism that's about marginalizing sections of the population, this is never good, right? And it's not, you know, populism that is that is mobilizing a majority demographic against a minority demographic is never good, right? I mean, populism that's that's mobilizing the people against an elite is one thing, but but you know, when you're when you you know, when you're dividing the population. Well, I'm just getting tired all of a sudden. When you're dividing the population, inciting against some demographic or something, that is not a good thing. Um, uh, Brezhnev and Eric Honecker. Well, Brezhnev uh, was the leader of the Soviet Union in the 1970s. It started in 1964. He came in. It was Kosygin and Brezhnev. Brezhnev kind of, you know, became the dominant one. Uh, throughout the 1970s, uh, he was the leader of the Soviet Union. He had very big eyebrows. That's what he was famous for. And he was trying to pick up the pieces from what Khrushchev had started, right? Khrushchev, you know, with de-Stalinization, had tried to kind of dismantle a lot of, of you know, and tried to, you know, reverse, you know, a lot of the policies of, of what, you know, had made the Soviet Union strong. Brezhnev was trying to get back to the Stalin way of doing things a little bit more. I mean, he didn't, he didn't full on embrace Stalin. He was, you know, but he, he was not trying, he, he kind of halted de-Stalinization, I guess you can call it, with Khrushchev. Khrushchev, a lot of his reforms were called de-Stalinization. Um, and uh, he, he halted that. Eric Honecker was the leader of West Germany. Um, and he was a Marxist and, um, you know, he was the leader of West Germany. And he was somewhat to the left of the Soviet Union in terms of foreign policy. I mean, for example, West uh, East Germany, I should say, East Germany was very big. The, D the German Democratic Republic was very big on LGBT rights, for example. Um, and so Eric Honecker was considered significantly to the left uh, of, of, this, of a lot of the people in the Soviet camp at that point. Um, Vosch's remarks about decolonization. Well, again, yeah, I mean, you know, it's like with Vosch debating anybody, it's about, you know, start doing a countdown until he compares them to a Nazi, right? Can, can 10 minutes go by in the debate, 20 minutes go by in the debate without him comparing them to a Nazi. It's a bizarre, a bizarre fixation that Vosch has, which again feeds my point that these people aren't really leftists. They are an attempt to deprogram the right wing, right? They have a list of people they're supposed to fight who are right wing. They don't really understand left wing politics. They just are there to fight the right wing because the right wing right now is the is a threat to the establishment, right? There is a right wing threat to the establishment. The left, the, the actual left is not really a very big threat to the establishment. Um, you know, so yeah, there you go. Um, you know, and it's just, you know, yeah, when he, I mean, you know, the whole decolonization debate that he had and all of that. Look, I mean, you know, I, I mean, I don't necessarily feel that that the woman he was arguing with was necessarily correct on everything. I mean, I didn't watch the whole debate. I watched a few clips from it. I don't really care to watch Vosh talk to anybody. Uh, but, you know, I, I mean, I'm not necessarily embracing her position. But the, the, I mean, the fact that he compared her to a Nazi, I mean, it's like, does he have any other comparisons to make than Nazis? I mean, it's just, it's like, everyone's a Nazi. 
everyone's a Nazi. And if everyone's a Nazi, pretty soon nobody's a Nazi. And if you say that, you're definitely a Nazi. You know, just making that point makes you a Nazi. That's what Nazis always say. So Nazis think everyone's just like them. I mean, this is just so ridiculous. So, you know, the coup in Guinea. Well, look, I, I want to do specific research about it before I, I get into specifics about it, Io, because I don't I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, I know, you know, Richard Wolf has talked a lot about the price of bauxite. Um, you know, since the pandemic over the last year in Africa, there has been a huge amount of malnutrition-related deaths. They have skyrocketed. Um, it's getting very little attention in American media. The UN has commented on it, but it's getting very little attention in American media. But there's, you know, been a huge amount of malnutrition-related deaths uh, in Africa. Um, and you have to also talk about the role of China in Africa um, and, you know, in China versus the United States and the politics in the country. And yes, there have been coups that have happened. It's, I mean, West Africa is facing some turmoil at the moment. It's not just Guinea, but there are other countries that are facing a lot of turmoil. Uh, and so I want to, before I comment specifically on that coup, I want to get into, you know, I want to get into specifics, but I want to, I want to do some specific research, but, you know, I, I've, I've had some conversations with people about it and, um, yeah, I, I guess I don't want to get too specific at the moment until I, I really know what I'm ready to say and then I will say it. All righty. Uh, good biography of Karl Marx. Um, you know, you know, you know what is actually kind of fun? I mean, this isn't a biography. This isn't an academic work. So I'm almost not comfortable recommending it. But, you know, there's a play about the life of Karl Marx written by um, Howard Zinn. Howard Zinn wrote Marx in Soho. And it's like a one-man play monologue uh, on Karl Marx's life. I've read several biographies. I have a couple. I don't remember who wrote them. I think one is just called Marx, A Life or something like that. And, you know, I mean, you know, they're interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, Marx in Soho, um, you know, which was a, a you know, a, a play by Howard Zinn. It was pretty good. Oh, there you go. So hydrate. Was pretty good. Um, yeah, I mean, so there you go. Um, Vietnam today, I think Vietnam is a socialist society. And they have, you know, I mean, there's an article from the World Economic Forum calling, uh, referring to Vietnam's economic miracle. I mean, it's a, you know, it's like China. They have market, you know, a market sector. And they, I actually went to the World Festival of Youth and Students uh, in Quito, Ecuador. Um, and I got to hear presentations from the Communist Youth Union of Vietnam. And, uh, you know, um, there's actually uh, very good. I mean, they talk about how they're not a fully socialist society yet, but they would like to be. They're moving toward that direction. Um, you know, they talked about how, um, you know, how how they do have differences with China. I mean, you know, China and Vietnam do not see eye, eye to eye on many things. Um, you know, they don't see eye to eye on many things. They have differences with each other. There's a very good document, uh, which I've circulated before from a leader of the Vietnamese Communist Party. It was republished by Political Affairs Magazine in about 2010. It's a very good document. I've been circulating it around. I'll have to dig it out of my email and, and, cir and circulate it again. A very, very good document about what socialism is, what it means, et cetera. It was presented in Cuba, I believe. I'll have to send that out. Um, is the problem neoliberalism or the reactionary middle class? Well, neoliberalism is an economic theory. 
Uh, that's what neoliberalism is. Uh, it's an economic theory. It's free markets, right? It's, you know, privatizations. Uh, reactionary middle class, that would be elements in the middle class. Um, you know, it's Trotskyism, simply Marxism minus Leninism. All right. Um, Um, you know, uh, reactionary middle class would be people in the middle class who want to go backward, uh, people who, who, you know, and, and that there is a very reactionary element within the middle class, right? A class without a future. Um, you know, the, the petty bourgeoisie that, that, that in the future, they either go to socialism and then they become absorbed by the working class, or they go to fascism and big capital triumphs and they're crushed. And they, they only look backward, an anthem by Ayn Rand um, and, uh, and, you know, 1984 by George Orwell, Animal Farm. These are expressions of the middle class, the fear that their petty bourgeois individualism will be taken away, their own little store, their own corner of the world. They don't have to sell their labor power to a capitalist, but they also, you know, they also are, you know, are, are at odds with the big big capitalists and corporations. They have their own little corner of the universe, their own autonomy. That's the petty bourgeoisie. And they talk about the petty bourgeoisie often has a very pessimistic, dark worldview because, because at the end of the day, they, they see nowhere in the future. They look into the future and there's no place for them, either big capital triumphs or communism triumphs, and they're doomed, right? Um, and that's when you talk about the reactionary middle class. And neoliberalism, neoliberalism is an economic theory that's promoted by the big bourgeoisie. Reactionary middle class is a worldview uh, that you can find. And sometimes they overlap in their perspective, but overall there's, there's a difference. Um, people that are attracted to leftism for the aesthetics. There's this obsession with aesthetics now. And what's weird is a lot of what we think of as left-wing aesthetics are actually right-wing, right? Um, hippie counterculture, Eastern mysticism, occultism, all of this stuff was historically associated with the right wing. That stuff wasn't considered left-wing until after World War II. In fact, it was the Nazis who had an obsession with, with, uh, with the Eastern mysticism and the occults. And, you know, I mean, there's a reason they picked the swastika as their symbol. It's a symbol from ancient India. And they thought they were descended from the people of ancient India, the Aryans, you know, and that, uh, you know, the, the Nazis loved the Dalai Lama. And, uh, you, know, the, you know, the Nazis were obsessed with primitive ancient societies because they had no class struggle and protests in them and everyone knew their place and such. And so a lot of the left aesthetics, what we think of as left-wing aesthetics are actually quite right-wing. And a lot of what we think of as, as right-wing or fascist aesthetics are things that fascists, you know, just stole from communists, right? You know, like saluting, right? We communists, we have our salute, the fist salute. Well, the Nazis had a salute also. I'm not going to do it. Um, but, you know, they, they obviously had a salute. And that salute, the Nazi, the reason the Nazis adopted their special salute is because communists already had their special salute, you know? Um, you know, communists marched and wore uniforms. Fascists marched and wore uniforms. A lot of the things that people think are fascist are just things that mass movements do. And then a lot of the things that we think of as left wing are actually pessimistic, you know, reactionary things that that come from the right. A lot of the synthetic left is a repackaging of Nazi and far right concepts, primitivism, uh, you know, pessimism, Malthusianism. A lot of a lot of synthetic leftism is a repackaging of far right ideas as left, um, you know. 
Uh, how do we convince people that killing Iraqis is a crime against humanity? Well, you have to get them to recognize the humanity of those Iraqis. You have to get them to recognize that, you know, that's not, the USA has no right to be in their country. You have to get them to recognize that, that that's wrong. I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, that's the main thing. Um, so, you know, there you go. All right. Um, Locally elected socialists. Well, there are many DSA members around the country that are elected. There's many Communist Party members who are elected. I interviewed uh, Wasaya Whitebird, who's a Native American young man who is from the Communist Party, who's been elected to a city council in Minnesota. Um, you know, I, around the country, there are many people that have been elected to office that are that are socialist in their perspective. Pat Noble uh, from Red Bank, New Jersey. I knew him years ago. I interviewed him many times. Nice guy from Red Bank, New Jersey. He was on the school board, I believe. He was was a socialist, uh, much younger than me, actually. A young guy, one of the youngest um, youngest elected elected officials in the country was this this you know this eighteen year old kid uh, who was in Red Bank, New Jersey. He was from the Socialist Party. So there you go. Um, the Communist Party in the Women's College uh, was formed. Well, that's, you know, the founding Congress of the Chinese Communist Party was held in the basement of a, of a women's dormitory at a university, from what I understand. Um, they, it was in the, in the basement, and they realized uh, that police were monitoring their comings and goings from the building, so then they, they, they did the final session on a boat in a lake. There was a boat nearby where you could get a, there was a lake nearby where you could get a boat, and so on, because they didn't want the police monitoring them, they left the basement of the women's dormitory, and they did the founding session of the Chinese Communist Party on a boat in a lake. And this was in the French concession of Shanghai. It was in an area of, of Shanghai that was under the control of the French government. That's where the founding meeting of the Chinese Communist Party happened. And the French concession of Shanghai, first in the basement of the women's dormitory, and then on a boat. And there were less than 30 people there. It was a very small meeting. But it was the beginning of something. Um, you know, there's actually, they made a documentary, uh, not a documentary, actually. It was a fictional film uh, they made called uh, The Founding, uh, The Beginning of the Great Revival, The Founding of the Party. It's about the story of the lead up to the founding of the Chinese Communist Party Congress. It's a great movie. Um, you know, I saw that movie in the theater in New York City. Um, I had just moved here. Um, it was in the theater in New York City with subtitles, obviously. And uh, they showed it in a movie theater in Manhattan. This was in 2011. I had just moved to the city. I watched the movie. And at the end of the movie, they have the final scene of the Congress where they stand up and sing the Internationale. I stood up in the movie theater. I'll never forget that. I was the only guy in the movie theater. Uh, you know, but the, the movie ended. It's this triumphant scene. I'm not going to give away what happens in case you go watch the movie. Because it's a great movie. It's a great Chinese movie. Uh, but then, you know, they all stand up, you know, and they sing the the anthem. Uh, and, uh, and then, you know, I was in the movie theater and I thought, well, I need to stand up. And so I stood up, you know, while they were singing the international, I just thought that was the appropriate thing to do. It was like the national anthem or something. Well, and I swear the whole movie theater was like looking at me, like what's wrong with you or something. But I guess sometimes you just are, you know, you just got to do your thing. So I stood up, I stood up in the movie about the founding of the Chinese communist party. What's a good resource on understanding China is doing in Africa. I have someone telling me China's only... Okay, resource on China in Africa. All righty, so there you go. Uh, abolishing the institution of employment. Well, what is the institution of employment? I mean, in a socialist society, people will have jobs, people will have wages, right? Obviously, as we move toward communism, uh, you know, that's a society from each according to their need, to each according to their own ability. 
right? Um, you know, communism, the higher stage of communism is when there are no wages. People can just do what they want to do and take what they feel like, you know, what they need, what they, what they need, do what they feel like doing. Um, but, you know, under socialism, you know, I mean, you know, there will be, you know, employment, but it will not be, you know, I mean, there will be employment by the state, there will be employment by cooperatives, there will be employment by private enterprises, there's going to be employment to some degree or other, right? I mean, you know, when, when, when there is still a scarcity of supplies, everyone won't be able to get the same amount, and it'll have to be allocated to some degree or other based on what people do. Now, under capitalism, those who work the hardest have nothing, and those who have it all don't do any work, right? Uh, that's capitalism. Um, but, you know, in a socialist society, there will probably be a need to incentivize some jobs uh, instead of others. In a socialist society, there will probably be, um, there will probably be, you know, some degree of shortages in some professions. So there will be, there will be, you know, there will be employment as an institution to some degree or other. But yes, the goal would obviously be to get to a world with such abundance where that was not necessary. Decolonization and socialism with American characteristics. I have answered this many, many times, but I will answer it again. Um, I am for the right of self-determination for colonized people within U.S. borders. If black people want to form a separate black republic, like the Black Belt, if they want to do that, I support their right to self-determination. You know, if um, if Chicano people want to have a separate Atzlan or Sun Belt Republic in the Old Southwest, they have the right to do it. You know, if indigenous people in North Dakota want to separate and have an autonomous territory or break away from the United States, they have the right to do it. I don't go around advocating it as a white man because that sounds like segregation, but I recognize the right of self-determination for the colonized people. And that is what decolonization really means. It means you recognize the right of colonized nations within the United States to self-determination. That's what it means, okay? I don't know what, when people say that it means that everyone's an evil Euro settler and that me it means that America must go up in flames and be destroyed. I don't know what you're getting at because decolonization means the right of self-determination being granted to historically colonized people. Oppressed nations have the right to determine their own destiny, have the right to choose integration or separation for themselves. And thank you, Gleb, for the super chat. Um, I don't know about a red square on the Lower East Side. Um, Union Square has always historically been considered to be the part of the United States uh, of New York City that is associated with labor rad radicalism. But you know, Tompkins Square, there were the Tompkins Square riots and stuff. But I don't know the history of an ML red square uh, on the Lower East Side of New York City. I'm not familiar with that. Um, Union Square is where the big May Day marches were historically, etc. All right, um, is Trotskyism like Marxism minus Leninism? No, it's about a, it's a halfway, right? Um, and that's, that's really, you know, you can see continuity throughout Trotsky's life, right? When Lenin wants to form the party of a new type, Trotsky says, oh no, I don't want to form a whole new party. I want to form the August bloc, like a radical faction of the Menshevik party. Um, and it failed, right? Um, you know, after Trotsky is, you know, kicked out of the Communist International, and he forms his fourth international. They all join the Socialist Party as entryists. Why? Uh, you know, because they join the Social Democrats. Trotsky very much saw himself, as much as he embraced a lot of Lenin's ideas, he saw himself as the left, the more radical wing of European social democracy. He was, he was Western European, um, you know, um, so there you go. 
On YouTube, Liberia's ex-minister of public works, Guide Moore, has a great lecture called China in Africa, an African Perspective. Well, that's very helpful. Piha, you answered uh, one of the super chats for me that I didn't have to answer. That's great. Thank you very much, Piha. I do appreciate it. Um, you know, um, but yeah, Trotsky throughout his throughout his career, um, he, you know, he he wasn't a full-on, he wasn't ready to accept what Lenin pushed fully. I mean, he kind of was to some degree or other, but um, is the Communist Party of Russia just controlled opposition? Well, the Communist Party of the Russian Federation is a huge organization. There are many different views within it. There are some within the organization that are hardline Marxist-Leninists. There are anarchists within the Russian Communist Party. There are social Democrats, European-style social Democrats within the Russian Communist Party. Um, there's many people in the Russian Communist Party that are atheists. Uh, there are many within the Russian Communist Party, including the leaders, Zhuganov, who are Orthodox Christians. The Russian Communist Party is a major political party. It is one of the main political parties in Russia, and it has millions of members. Um, so, you know, to describe it, you know, with a broad brush like that, controlled opposition, I mean, it's part of the government in Russia. Um, you know, it is definitely part of the government. It is definitely, uh, you know, it's in charge. There's mayors that are communist mayors. There's, you know, city councils. There are you know, regions. I mean, it is a major political party that, that has a role absolutely in governing the country. It's part of the political structure of Russia, no doubt. It's a very important institution. Um, but what do you mean controlled? When you say controlled opposition, what does that mean? I mean, it's you know, are the are the Republicans controlled opposition to the Democrats? I mean, we all know that they they're part of the same political setup. They're just, you know, a different faction of it. But there there are differences between them. And yes, I think the Communist Party is very much part of the Russian state. I mean, there's many people in the Russian government apparatus that are in the Communist Party, but they have differences with other people that are part of the Russian state apparatus. And they have different points of view and different perspectives. You know, um, so I don't think controlled is the right word. I think it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, they're not like in the woods waging guerrilla warfare or something. They are part of the Russian political system. They're part of the Russian government apparatus, but they're, they're one section of it that has a communist perspective. Whereas you have, you know, a nationalist perspective. You have, you have, there's a lot of people in Russia that are, you know, westernized. You have a westernized perspective. When I was there for the elections, I mean, you had Putin who was running, um, you know, and he, he actually quit his own party. He became, he said he was above parties. He wasn't going to be in any party. So he, he left the United Russia party. He just ran as a nonpartisan candidate. Uh, you had, you know, the, the candidate of the Communist Party. He wasn't actually a member of the Communist Party. He was, a, you know, he was the guy who was the director of the Lenin Farms, um, you know, Pavel Gradinin. He was from the, you know, he was the candidate of the Communist Party. Uh, then you had uh, the Liberal Democratic Party, which are, you know, a very much a, like a right wing and almost, a, you know, a far right wing party, you know, that, you know, that advocated bringing back the death penalty, was very hostile to Muslims and such. Um, and then you had, uh, there was another candidate that was very much pro-Western. I remember she got on CNN and she apologized for the USA for, for meddling in U.S. elections. And she was very much the pro-Western candidate, right? Um, you know, and, and then Vladimir Putin won the elections. But those, those other three, they were the three other major candidates. And they all represented more or less, I mean, there were people within the Russian political structure who agreed with them. And then there were many other minor candidates in the election who were not 
not worth paying attention to. I mean, there were a number of candidates in the election who were, you know, I mean, they were just like fringe candidates. Like we, you know, I mean, but those three candidates, you know, the, the communist candidate, the liberal democratic candidate and the pro-Western candidate and Putin, those were considered the major candidates. Um, and they very much represented, all of them represented, they were considered major candidates because they represented force, real forces within the government apparatus. They weren't just people who had an idea and started a campaign. They were, you know, there are a lot of communists uh, that have positions within the Russian government apparatus. There are a lot of, you know, far right individuals who have, you know, uh, positions within the government apparatus. There are a lot of pro-Western individuals in Russia that have positions in the government apparatus. Um, you know, and I think those those three opposition candidates, if you want to call them, who ran against Putin represented different currents of people within the Russian government structure. Um, you know, and Putin obviously represents, I mean, he was the guy who got the majority of the votes. He's who most people in the country politically support and identify with. He's a very popular leader. Uh, he represents, you know, you know, uh, the majority opinion, which is influenced by all three, I would argue, right? I, I think that, you know, Putin admits that communism has been an influence on him. He's not a communist anymore, but it was definitely an influence on him. He has admitted that Russian nationalism is a big influence on him. And there's a part of Putin that is kind of pro-Western. You know, Putin is not, you know, is, is, is not, you know, uh, you know, completely... Uh, you know, completely, you know, committed to some kind of, you know, anti-imperialist ideal. I mean, Putin is very much, you know, the Russian state apparatus as it currently exists is a balance of many different forces and many different perspectives, right? The way Russia has developed, you know, you had the fall of the Soviet Union, you had Yeltsin, who was kind of a puppet of the West to impose neoliberalism. And then you had Putin come in, which in some ways, in some ways was a repudiation of Yeltsin, but in some ways it was a compromise with Yeltsin, right? You know, if, if Zhuganov, the communist, had gotten elected in 1996, that would have been a full-on repudiation of Yeltsin. But the USA wasn't going to let that happen, um, you know, but, but when Putin came in, it was very much, on the one hand, it was, you know, we're going to do things different than Yeltsin did things, but it was also, there was a compromise. It was people from the Yeltsin administration were able to move on and into the Putin administration. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't like a complete repudiation of absolutely everything Yeltsin had did. It was a, it was a compromise with Yeltsin, but a shift away from Yeltsin's policies. Um, and I think that's, that's my understanding of it as an American, as someone who's, you know, I'm not from there, but I've been over there before. And, you know, I've studied history and that's my understanding. I'm somebody who, who is from there and has lived under it, is probably far more, you know, qualified to address the political nuances of this than I am. But my understanding of it is that, and that, that in Russia, there are a number of different influential political forces and that Putin very much balances between, there are different, different forces in the country and that he often, you know, plays the role of balancing and compromising some of these different, you know, contradictory interests within the Russian state apparatus, right? Which the Russian state, I mean, it's the, the state is a very big, I mean, it, it, it very, very much is a big part of the economy. I mean, you know, Gazprom and Rosneft, two state-controlled energy companies, they have state-controlled industries, they have, they have state subsidization of private industries and stuff. The state is very much the center of the economy in Russia. But that state is that state is at this point. It's not an ideological Marxist state by any means. They don't believe in communism anymore. That state is guided by the um, by the Russian Orthodox Church, which is kind of the 
you know, the, the main symbol, you know, the main expression of, of the Russian state. But at the same point, there's a lot of people in the government that are communists. There's a lot of people in the government who are very anti-communist. And there's a lot of people in the government who are pro-Western. There's a lot of people in the government who are very anti-imperialist and very anti-Western. Um, and there are, there are, there, it's, a, it's a balance of forces. And again, this kind of gets back to what I opened the stream talking about, which is that that's how the real world works. Compromise coalitions, you know, that's generally how things work. Um, so there you go. Um, and on that note, folks, I think I'm going to end it here. We did five for five. We did five for five. Um, that's awesome. We set out to do five for five. We did five for five. Tomorrow's going to be a wild day for me, but uh, hopefully I'll be back on Sunday night. We shall see. Fingers crossed. Um, and there you go. Um, good times, folks. A new upsurge in the struggle against U.S. imperialism is now emerging throughout the world. Ever since World War II, U.S. imperialism and its followers have been continuously launching wars of aggression. The people of various countries have been continuously waging revolutionary wars to defeat their aggression. And while the danger of a new world war still exists and the people of all countries must get prepared, revolution is the main trend in the world today. While the danger of a new world war still exists and the people of all countries must get prepared, revolution is the main trend in the world today. Good night.